Coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast, is Hamilton the epicenter of COVID-19? Conservative Michelle Rempel-Gardner joins us to talk about harassment in the House of Commons. A U.S. view of Afghanistan. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Second last day of the COVID-19 summer of 2021 before back to class. I don't know whether to laugh or cry. What does it matter? You can't tell behind a mask. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. I don't know. Where's your mask? I, a hint of sarcasm there, perhaps? Uh, good afternoon. It is 12-11. It is 900. CHML, I'm Scott Thompson. Willers, come back at the station. Keep it the Scott Thompson Home Show. Between the pipes, feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to have you. There's lots of ways to do that. You can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right. Uh, boy, we're certainly starting to hear some uh, news about COVID. The great news is, is that... Uh, uh, the majority of us are fully vaccinated and more and more are getting vaccinated every day. We have to encourage that, uh, getting people out and uh, push this over the finish line, so to say, uh, so to speak, and uh, get everyone vaccinated. That being said, uh, Hamilton has expanded its operations uh, in a test in uh, two testing centers. We're going to talk about that. Also, booster doses and modeling that has come up. Uh, of late in uh, in regard to COVID-19 and what we can expect for the uh, for the fall. Let's bring in Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks very much. I am. Hope you are too. Yeah, Dr. Boy, you know, I, I hope that sooner or later we'd start talking to you less and less and less and then, you know, you'd just be a distant memory for us all. But here we are again heading into a fourth wave and we're asking you for your thoughts and your information and give us a, an update on where Hamilton is now. We're hearing that things are starting to, to tick up again. Yeah, thanks very much. I, you know, I, I would love to be uh, talking about other things that are really important that affect yeah. the health of Hamiltonians, but we are back talking about a fourth wave. We're currently sitting at about um, 80 cases per day on average. You know, we hit a, uh, a three-digit number. Uh, recently, we're at our weekly incident sitting at 94 per 100,000. So the increase has been pretty quick in terms of uh, the, the case counts. We've got 18 outbreaks that are active right now. Um, I think, you know, as we think about all these things, the good news is most of those outbreaks are small, which speaks, I think, to both the continued public health measures that people are, by and large, using masks when they're in indoor settings. Um, and, of course, that's really a very important thing to continue to do and to do physical distancing when you can't. And the other thing is that our vaccination rates, while we'd like them to be higher, our goal is, of course, 90% and up. The science tables talked about that 85% number to really have an impact on this particular wave. We're sitting at 79.9% for those who started their vaccination who are 12 and up and 72.7% that have completed it. So um, we do, of course, have that recent outbreak that happened in our nightclub, and that really underscores that the, the real concern is those settings where people are close, not physical distancing, have their masks off for a period of time. And that is why we've seen the, the problems come forward with that vaccine verification system that we think is so important. And if people still have not got vaccinated, want to get vaccinated, are listening right now, what can they do to get vaccinated? 
Absolutely. We you know, strongly encourage them to get vaccinated. There are uh, many, many sites across the city that we're running. We did close down FOC at the weekend as we um, released those staff to really focus on a number of smaller sites um, across the city. So our webpage is the best place to find all of those different clinics. Um, the St. Joe's Clinic, of course, is just wrapping up as well. We're going to be at places like Lime Ridge this weekend. We're going to be in all sorts of different things. And I have to say, it's, it's really good to see two things. One is that we are seeing lots of people come out for first doses. And so that's great. You can't get a second dose and be fully protective if you don't start. The other piece is that there is a really good turnout for a lot of these innovative um, clinics. We had the GoVax bus. We had the top rate their first week out in the province at our Rosedale site. We've seen lots of people come out to the Tim Hortons clinics that happened last week. And so really seeing these as ways to go where people are, uh, where people may not have been thinking about it and are now thinking about it because it's right there where they can access it. And of course, our focus continues to be on those, those parts of the city with lower vaccine coverage as well, trying to give as many opportunities as we can for those people to get vaccinated. Doctor, we remember, uh, you know, as vaccines slowly started to become available and then in mass quantity in May, we saw these giant clinics and, and everybody, you couldn't get an appointment fast enough. And now, obviously, we've sort of plateaued and, and we're seeing a waning here. Uh, how difficult it how difficult a job is it to pinpoint those little areas, those little hot spots that need to be addressed as opposed to a mass, you know, uh, policy like we had before? Well, it is, it is challenging, as you can imagine, trying to figure out exactly what's going to give us the best rate in the quickest fashion. And so we've done a lot of work, as I said, in those, those um, areas of the city that do have lower coverage. We've been in there. We were early on, had a broader, broader list of those sites that we went to early on. Um, so we've been in there for months and months now, trying to uh, bring the vaccine as close to people as we possibly can. That said, we do uh, know that you know changes to the to the program, such as the um, trying to get the group of kids that are 11 and up or turning 12, I should say, um, vaccinated. Those uh, are are things that we want to make more accessible. So you see the school clinics as well going on, so that we can get the rates up for teachers, the kids that are eligible for vaccination for their families. So we're, we've got a whole set of teams that are working on those things and, uh, and it is challenging work, but very rewarding work when they get out there. One of the new focuses for us has been workplaces. And so we, you know that ArcelorMittal DeFasco did join with us in putting on both a, a work-related and a community-related clinic. We are offering to employers to go out to their sites. And so Oak Run Bakery, for example, has taken us up on that. And we're going to be out there to their uh, to their site, but uh, particularly looking at those larger employers who have that close kind of work and where they think their vaccine rates might be low, um, we're more than happy to go out and work with them and see what uh, can be done to increase their vaccination rates. Uh, Doctor, uh, Niagara's top doc said Hamilton is a quote epi- epicenter of COVID. Your thoughts on that? Is that is that fair? Well, it is fair. Right now in the province, between ourselves and Windsor, we're leading the pack in terms of the case rates for COVID, uh, vac- uh, COVID cases, I should say. And of course, those are largely amongst the unvaccinated. Um, and so that's why we're really keen on, you know, making sure people understand that they need to maintain those public health measures. I think people thought we were, you know, continuing to go out of step three into that exit from the roadmap, which of course was all paused 
as this wave four started to raise its head. And so remembering that those measures continue to be the things that are going to keep you safe. And that's underscored actually in our case and contact management strategy that we do do. So we vaccine is what's going to keep people safe in terms of a lesser risk of, of disease overall, but especially keep them safe in terms of severe disease and unfortunately death as well. Um, but we're also going to be working with anybody, whether they're vaccinated or not, really underscoring the importance of getting tested twice if they are a case, making sure if they are um, have people who are uh, vulnerable populations, that they're not going to visit them if they are a case, making sure we contact them frequently as well. So all of that is part of our approach. And, and again, why we're very much encouraging vaccination policies in workplaces doing that risk assessment, bringing in what you can to support your workforce to be vaccinated and looking at whether or not you need to go farther um, and uh, and looking at things like vaccine verification. Dr. Richardson is with us, uh, Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton. Doctor, uh, modeling out yesterday from Ontario, and uh, it, it seems uh, alarming to say the least. How do you interpret that, especially in now a world that is uh, mostly vaccinated? Well, I think this is the piece where we are going to see some cases continue. We're figuring out how to live in a world with COVID. Um, But unfortunately, our vaccination rates aren't where we would want them to be yet to both keep those case numbers down and keep the number of cases that end up in hospital and ICUs down. So one of the concerns throughout the pandemic has been um, both that people are getting so sick, but also the impacts on our healthcare system. Because remembering it's there to treat those that are, are gotten into uh, car crashes. It's there to treat people with heart attacks, strokes, all of those things that require those hospital beds, as well as um, our ICUs. And so very concerned. We're seeing that locally with our own uh, hospitals and our ICUs as there is pressure on them already uh, this early in this wave, which is earlier than before. And remembering that, unfortunately, this Delta variant is both more infectious and causes more severe disease. And so um, we're, uh, we're quite concerned about those pieces, and it's why these, uh, the measures that are being put in place are really important. Are you surprised we're seeing these numbers still compared to the rate that we do have uh, vaccinated? Um, you know, I mean, you think of the first wave, the second wave, and the third wave, and, and going through those without vaccination. Now into the fourth, we are. But I guess we, and I'm asking you to, to answer a question you probably can't answer, but, you know, at the end of the day, we're not sure what it's going to look like uh, as these cases rise with a vaccinated population or a population with a good portion of it vaccinated. Well, I think the science tables modeling gives us a, a good idea of what it will look like given where we're at with our vaccination rates. And, and we continue to look at modeling and we'll be bringing some of that to the Board of Health um, on September 20th. But essentially, we've known for a, long, for a long period of time to really have an impact both from a herd immunity perspective in terms of reducing spread overall, but as well those severe impacts to the individual in terms of not getting you know, significantly sick, not ending up in hospital, not ending up, unfortunately, in an ICU or even dying from this, this disease, that vaccination is a critical, critical element of that. There are ways to protect yourself through public health measures, masking, physical distancing, washing your hands. And those have to stay um, vaccinated or not. But vaccine is the best way to protect yourself from serious disease. So 
we're not at the kind of levels we've been talking about. The science table talked about substantially above 85%. Our uh, vaccination goals are 90% and above. So we've got a ways to go, especially since our 12, um, 12 and up cannot yet be vaccinated. So we need to do all of this um, as well to protect those who can't be, including those kids, as well as those who can't be for medical reasons. And of course, we so desperately want our schools to stay open, kids to be in school. They need it. They need it from all of us mm. to support them so they can be in school. So with this modeling, doctor, uh, any prediction for the fall as the kids do get back to school and as everybody goes inside, um, are we in for a tough fall? You know, I, we've heard, heard Dr. Karen Moore, who's the uh, the Chief Medical Officer of Health for the province, talk about that, that, that this is going to be a difficult fall, that we are expecting to see cases, we are expecting to see outbreaks. Um, we're going to have to, to manage them as best we can, and we need to all take steps to increase those protections that, uh, that are there for us, the vaccination rates, the continued use of public health measures, and those, you know, when we look at this, those are really the key things as we go forward to do this. But We'll be working with our schools on you know, managing any outbreaks that do occur and, uh, and supporting them as we go forward. You know, it's interesting, as people got vaccinated and went out in the summer, um, you know, I, I think a lot of us thought, wow, this is nice. This is uh, going to be the future. Um, but that being said, it's going to be cautious going into the fall. What advice do you have for those heading into the fall as, as we go through a long weekend, the last long weekend of the summer and into school. Uh, what is your advice to people? Other than, of course, well, getting vaccinated. <laughs> I'll say it again. I'll say it again, Scott. Absolutely. Getting vaccinated is, you know, one of the very key measures. The other is, is the, you know, all of them are the measures you've heard from us all the way through, which is staying home if you're sick. We still do encourage people, if they can work from home, to stay at home. Um, minimize uh, your contacts to the extent that you can um, that uh, that aren't necessary, particularly be thinking about those people who are vulnerable populations, you know, and uh, and making sure if you're a, a contact that's, uh, that's been identified related to a case, not to go and see them. Um, and overall, continue to wear that mask indoors whenever you can. Remember those venues where that are higher risk and uh, and steps that need to be taken there in particular um, to protect yourself. Just with vaccine verification coming in down the road on September 22nd, you know, absolutely make sure those public health measures are followed until then, and uh, and all the better to implement any sorts of policies, the employment policies, earlier if can be. So all of those remain key as we go forward. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson with us, Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton, and some great advice as we head into the last long weekend, uh, unofficially, of the summer of 2021. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for the time and insight and your availability. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. Cheers. And now the commentary. As of September 22nd, Ontario residents will need to show proof of full vaccination along with photo ID in order to access the following settings. Restaurants and bars, excluding outdoor patios as well as delivery and takeout. Nightclubs, meeting and event spaces, banquet halls, convention centers, facilities used for sports and fitness activities, and personal fitness training such as gyms, sporting events, casinos, bingo halls, gaming establishments, concerts, music festivals, theaters, and cinema. Strip clubs, bathhouses, and sex clubs.
No vaccine passport is required for church, the beer or liquor store, patios and outdoor spaces, banks, salons and barbershops, shopping malls, grocery and drug stores, hospitals and clinics, the gas station. What is odd in this game of mandatory vaccine passport is the list of stuff we can do without a vaccine passport includes more of what the average person does on a daily basis anyway than the non-essential list of concerts, restaurants, bars, and sporting events that most of us don't attend. I hope this provincial vaccine passport patchwork is more than just an exercise in futility. Where's the federal government? Until then... Just get vaccinated. I'm Scott Thompson. All right, let's bring in Michelle Rempel-Gardner, a conservative candidate for Calgary Nose Hill. And here's the reason. Justin Trudeau came under fresh pressure on Wednesday over his handling of harassment complaints against a liberal candidate. The conservative and NDP leaders both accused Trudeau of failing to take complaints against a liberal candidate who is seeking re-election for a third time. Seriously enough, conservative leader Aaron O'Toole accused Trudeau of a culture of cover-up. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh said uh, the liberal leader was not listening to women the cbc republished a report tuesday quoting anonymous sources that alleged that the candidate had made inappropriate comments and unwanted sexual advances to female members of his staff the cbc also reported that this uh, inappropriate alleged inappropriate behavior was first shared with the prime minister's office back in december of 2015 to talk more about all of this michelle rempel garner conservative candidate is with us now michelle thank you for the time i hope you're doing well I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks so much. Uh, are you surprised by this, especially from a feminist, self-proclaimed feminist leader? I just, I think this is an issue that really has to transcend partisan politics and has to be focused on the women in these stories. Um, I, I will say this: um, changing a culture where harassment and these types of allegations can occur takes leadership from the very top. And I just don't think that Justin Trudeau acknowledged this. I don't think he's acknowledged these concerns. I mean, in this incident, and there's been others, when he was asked yesterday uh, by a reporter if he believes the women or the candidate, uh, he, he didn't even mention the women. He, he, not, he, he launched right into uh, what Mr. Saini had said. And I just, to me... When, when women hear that, they think that there can't be justice. And when men who have a habit of doing this sort of behavior hear that, they think that they can get away with it, and it continues. So um, I, 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 this needs to change. I've been doing this interview now, it feels like, for 10 years. Uh, I, 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 I just wish that there was some justice. And, you know, Mr. Trudeau could have taken a leadership role in that in his response and he's chosen not to and um, for the sake of the women that are involved in this I hope that the Canadian public takes note of that we have certainly uh, seen what's been happening with the Canadian Armed Forces, uh, the, the issues that have come up uh, over the last little while in regard to 
misconduct within the armed forces, uh, especially uh, amongst leadership and such. Uh, we know now that despite a report that came out a few years ago, we're back in waiting for uh, another report to, to, to I guess, uh, bring us up to date on all of this. It seems that all we're doing is shoving paper around and, and, and talking a lot about it, but I can certainly hear the passion in your voice and other women's voices when they talk about this issue. You, you just feel it's, you're, you're not being listened to. Yeah, I, I just, again, my heart goes out for the women. This is where my focus is, and I think a lot of Canadians should be. Um, I, there needs to be change. Like, right now I'm questioning, uh, seriously questioning if the House of Commons policy, uh, which was put in place very recently to address these concerns, is adequate. I'm not even sure it was followed in this case. Uh, the CBC was reporting that, uh, you know, the, the Trudeau's chief of staff was alerted to these allegations, but nothing was done. Um, and I, 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 I just, I, I can't believe that we're still having this conversation in 2021 after the Me Too movement. It's just, and it's not just politics, but I mean, yes, there's an element of hypocrisy with Justin Trudeau that I could point out politically, but what's more dangerous is that by him normalizing brushing this stuff under the rug and under the carpet, it, 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 it will perpetuate this culture and stuff will continue to happen. Zero tolerance means stopping it, taking it seriously, uh, listening and believing allegations when they come up so that they can be fulsomely investigated. And I just, I, I have serious doubts as to whether that happened at, at this point of time. And I'll just say this, why is it me raising this issue? Like, why don't we have more liberals speaking up on this. I've held my party to account in similar situations and I've seen change happen. And I just I, I, I just would beg liberal candidates across the country to, to to publicly speak out on this because it does need to change. People need to feel safe in their place of work. Uh, you obviously are a strong member of the House of Commons. Has Have you seen any significant change in the time that you have been there? Have you seen anything that sheds some light and, and that makes you believe, oh, at least we're moving in the right direction? Well, there, there is a policy that was put in place through legislation for, to, to govern the House of Commons staff uh, in this regard and, and members of Parliament. Um, I just, like, reading the CBC article, reading the, the allegations, I, it doesn't seem to me like the, the process was followed, um, like, in, in several instances. So... It's, it's very well and good that we start putting process in place, but if it doesn't work and if the people up at the top are seeking to circumvent it, then, like, here we are again. And I, it is about seeking justice for women who've experienced this, but it's also about making sure that it doesn't happen again so that, you know, women are feeling safe in their place of work. And I, you know, on, on that measure... Clearly, given this report, I think the answer to that is no, that that, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, if there was not an election campaign right now, do you think this would have been treated any differently? I'm actually shocked that this is not more of a national media issue. Um, I think it's, I, I, I guess I'm shocked, but I'm not shocked. Um, I have always spoken up on these issues when they happen, whether it be in my tent or without I think the hallmark on whether or not a political entity is or an organization 
is serious about addressing this is if members within their own tent speak up about it. And all I'm getting right now is static on the Liberal side. Uh, it's not easy to speak up. I mean, silence is rewarded. Uh, powerful men don't like uh, people who rock the boat uh, and rock the status quo, but silence is what covers this up. Silence is what propagates uh, more, you know, more culture of misconduct. And I just, I just implore people to, to really hold their leaders to account in this regard. Um, I, I hope I don't have to do an inter- another interview like this, but I don't know, watching what's happened and the response of the Liberal leader to this, you know. You are obviously speaking up and have uh, on many occasions about this issue. Are other women uniting in the House, even across uh, party lines? I mean, there's a common denominator here. Does this go bigger than partisan politics? Is there, is there, is there, is there, is there unity within the female gender in the house that, Hey, if we band together, we can, we can make change. Well, first of all, why does it have to be the women banding together? Where are the guys on this? Good point. I have to do the heavy lifting. Number one, I think that's preposterous. Number two, you know, credit where credit's due. The, I know, um, the NDP has been out on this in the last little while, but the silence from the liberals is deafening. So, you know, these, there are members of that party that will, you know what, and rightly, stand up and point their finger when something happens in another party. But what happens when it stands, when it's in your own party? I'm like, look, again, to reemphasize, I have stood up in the House of Commons and criticized my own party because I know that for the women that I work with, I have to, like, that's my job. And is it easy? No. Does it make people comfortable? No. But I don't want people to be comfortable. And I hope that every liberal candidate, I hope somebody's listening to this. If a liberal candidate's listening to this, I hope you're uncomfortable with your silence. Because of, like, the silence is what allowed this to happen. And I just, unless we have more people speaking up with courage uh, and a desire for change, this will, this will continue. You and I will be having another conversation, I guarantee it. And that makes me sad, and it also makes me very concerned for the health and safety of women working on Parliament Hill. What would you say, Michelle, to women who are thinking of a career? Uh, You're a role model. They're thinking of following in your shoes. What advice would you have for them? I will do everything possible within my purview to fight on these issues. It doesn't matter what political stripe you are. And there are others who will do the same. Um, I would encourage every other candidate of every political strike today, particularly liberal women, to do the same. And, and to start by, um, you know, showing by example that we, we are committed to a safe workplace. Um, and, but it's not just politics. I mean, this happens everywhere. It's just nobody wants to talk about it. And you know, if you read the CBC article, there's a line in there where it says one of the women was like, well, I don't. You know, she was concerned about her career in speaking up. That shouldn't happen. So enough is enough. Uh, we need more people speaking out. But to any woman who's considering running for office, do it. Because, the, you know, you can affect change. But that doesn't mean it doesn't come without a fight. We've talked uh, at length on this show over the last year and a half about how life will be different coming out of a global pandemic and, and how it has changed us and maybe the way we look at things, our priorities and such. Have you noticed any sort of change when it comes to politics? Uh, you know, is, is there more 
uh, is there more uh, empathy? Is, is there more uh, of a, a desire to unite coming out of a global pandemic, or is it same old, same old? Um, you know, I've do- I've knocked on thousands of doors in the last several weeks, um, and I would say this: I think in my community, uh, people are, you know, they're they're coming out of, I think what it was like sort of a national trauma. I mean, people were locked down for a long period of time. They, um, there's, everybody has a story of how this affected their lives and then he lost their jobs. And I think people are just in this place where it's like survival mode and, you know, looking for stability to what happens next. And I, I actually think that the electorate's not in a mood for overtly partisan politics they want to see change they want to see a plan to make their lives better and in that sense i think that there's some unity uh but i do think there's a lot of anger um so i hope uh, you know i certainly feel compelled to as somebody who's reoffering to try and channel that into a, a plan that has some change and some hope and some positivity and i you know i i, I just encourage everyone else to do the same and you know on the issue that we're talking about here uh man, I, I just hope you and I aren't having an interview on this again in six months, a year, whatever. So. All right, one last question, Michelle, uh, about the election. Uh, obviously, polling out today, Aaron O'Toole, conservative leader, picking up ground. Uh, before the election campaign was called, obviously, the leader, uh, the Liberals had a lead. Uh, why do you think Aaron O'Toole is resonating with Canadians now? Well, I think we've run a very positive, hopeful campaign. We, we put our full platform out on day two of the campaign. Um, it's, it's getting some resonance across the country. I know a lot of people that I'm talking to, particularly candidates in other parts of the country, are you know, feeling a cause for optimism that what we're offering is resonating with Canadians. I think on, on the converse side, I think uh, uh, Justin Trudeau miscalculated in several areas. I think he assumed that the electorate was not paying attention to politics because it was the summer. That is not the case. I think it was a very arrogant position. Uh, he called an election without, you know, telling the electorate why or defining that in the middle of the Afghanistan crisis. You know, forest fires were burning in British Columbia, the fourth wave of, of covid um, I think that is, is part of it as well. And I, I think his platform, Trudeau's platform is, you know, I, the, the headline I read yesterday was something like rehashed, retread. And, and he's kind of lost credibility on his promises, right? Like he's making promises again this time that he's made years ago and hasn't delivered on. So um, I think that Canadians are looking for something different. Certainly what we're trying to do as a party is present them with some strong policy that's credible, that's compassionate. Uh, that is going to keep us healthy and safe, get us back to work, and 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 moving forward. Um, so I, I I feel I feel hopeful. I feel optimistic. And uh, you know we've got 18 days left in the campaign, and I know that that's what our party is going to keep our head down and keep delivering on uh, through to the end of of this election, which is coming very quickly. Michelle Rempel-Garner with us, conservative candidate for Calgary Nose Hill. Justin Trudeau under fresh pressure on Wednesday over his handling of harassment complaints against a liberal candidate. Uh, Michelle talking about the ongoing fight women face in the House of Commons and all across the board uh, in Canadian businesses and such. Michelle, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Take care, you too. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, obviously, uh, the situation continues uh, in Afghanistan, uh, despite uh, uh, the airfield and such uh, being closed to people coming in and out uh, as far as evacuation and such. Uh, where do we go from here? Let's bring in Brian J. Karam. He is a White House reporter and political analyst for CNN and host of Just Ask the Question podcast and is with us now. Brian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing good. Thanks so much. So, Brian, how is America viewing this and, and what has been happening after this pullout? Well, I guess it depends on your point of view. Those who, uh, you know, the Trumpers and those who hate Biden are convinced that he's brought about the end of the world and we're all going to die in a fiery doom any minute. Those who uh, support uh, Biden think he's done the best he can in a bad situation or they think he's, you know, moved heaven and earth. Uh, for those of us who are just trying to assess what has happened and, and, and look at it, it's, it, it's more um, problematic than that. It was, it was a place we should have never been. We were uh, trying to extricate ourselves from it. Uh, it wasn't a war that was lost. It was a sheriff who hung up his badge and went home because, you know, honestly, after sinking so many trillions of dollars into Afghanistan, it would have been easier if we had just gone in and paved the roads, build schools and markets and uh, spent all the money on infrastructure there. I mean, we're proposing to spend less in the United States on in, on a major infrastructure package than we spent in Afghanistan in the last 20 years, to put it in perspective. So you kind of have to look at the situation and go, eh, what's next? What, what so, are we going to do now? So was there a way to do this better or, uh, you know, just the best of a bad situation? I don't know. How do you do it? I mean, you can't anticipate everything that's going to happen. Uh Biden at least accepted responsibility for what he did, which is something Donald Trump would never do, even after he encouraged people to inject Clorox to cure the, the <laughs> coronavirus. He wouldn't, you know, I asked him that question. And he goes, no, it's not my fault. I had nothing to do with it. Although he, you know, encouraged people to do it. So Biden came out and said, look, this was my decision. I made it. I don't think there's anything any any uh, administration or any military could do. Any, there's no armed forces in the world that can adequately protect you from a suicide bomber who wants to take their own life and murder, you know, innocent civilians. I don't know how you prevent that. Um, and I don't think anybody in the military does. So I think they did do the best they, they could with a bad situation. And I'll say it with this caveat, the one failure that has to be looked at explicitly was the failure to understand how quickly the uh, Taliban would take over uh, the country. Uh, the, the administration, the Biden administration projected it would be about a year. And of course it happened in a couple of weeks. So where was the failure there? That was in, that was definitely in, that was a failure of intelligence. And in this country, a failure of intelligence is the norm. How do we explain that simply because 20 years there, 20 years of training, all of that military equipment, how, like you said, it was as if the sheriff dropped the badge and ran out of town. How do we explain, you know, after 20 years of, of fortifying this area that it, that it, it fell so quickly? I guess we didn't know how corrupt their leaders were. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, basically when the uh, Taliban, look, once we were gone and, and the military wasn't getting paid and they have to they have to feed their families, too. And the leaders absconded with a lot of the money. I mean, you have the Taliban come into town and go, look, here's a ham sandwich and, and we won't kill you. It, it's really easy to to you know switch sides. And 
that's simplifying it a bit, but that's basically what occurred was that uh, the military, the trained military that we had put in that country was not paid and was not backed by a very corrupt uh, Afghan government. And, and, you know, the Afghan government, the, Af- the Afghanistan itself has been called the graveyard of empires for a good reason. Hmm. It's it, and it's never been a unified country. In, in my memory, it's always been, you know, tribes that have, uh, com- you know, competed and killed each other in a place they call Afghanistan. So it, it's not like we were going to go in there and nation build. That wasn't our goal. We, we shouldn't have been there. If there was any reason to be there, and I'll submit to you that there was never a really good reason to be there. It was George Bush who got us there. But after a decade, and when we got Osama bin Laden and found him and, and brought him to, you know, killed him uh, in Pakistan, mind you, he had been training in Afghanistan. But once that was done, what was the real purpose of us staying there? For 10 years, we've just been, you know, a de facto police department. And unless you're going to, you know, declare it the 51st state and start shipping over, uh, you know, McDonald's and American food and, and you know, Walmarts, what, what's the point of being there? Uh, considering everything you've just said and how this is, you know, just a cesspool of terrorism, are you concerned that we'll be back? Because two, three, four, five years from now, this will be a concern as it was 20 years ago. It's always a concern. And I think that uh, there were a couple things that uh, Biden said in his um, speech when he got us out earlier this week from the East Room that um, made my ears stand up. And, and maybe some maybe there's a, a president who gets it. Look, you're never going to cure tourism with a gun. I mean, terrorism with a gun, you yeah. can cure tourism with one. But you're not going to cure terrorism with a gun. This is, these are people who have no hope. And they're down at the lowest end of the economic scale. And the thing that everyone likes about America is, is the lifestyle. They don't like our military too much. So instead of exporting the military, we've got to try other means. You know, it used to be said, make the world safe for Coca-Cola and McDonald's. And that's not too far from accurate. Instead of spending that money militarily, if we'd spend that money on education, infrastructure and and the way of life that these people want, we probably would have been a, a little bit more successful. And there, were, that's what Biden was alluding to, that we have to use our d- diplomacy, our economic uh, stature, and, um, and international pressure to bring these people to bear. You've got to give them hope. You've got to give them a reason not to blow you up. Think about that. Somebody who straps a bomb to themselves and is willing to take out a bunch of people, they – what – what prompts that? It's it's. I mean, you have to be pretty daggone desperate to do it. So if you um, relieve some of that despair, you might have a better chance. And you know, everyone wants to belong. Everyone wants to be part of something. You talk to people who followed Osama bin Laden, and they said, you know, the one thing they liked about him is, you know, that it was, the, you know, they felt loved. Everyone wants to feel that. Why don't we do it? You know, America has the ability to do that properly with education, infrastructure, ed, uh, um, you know, entertainment. My God, you know, the, the culture of the United States is its greatest export. If we start doing that instead of pointing guns in people's faces. In the long run, I think you'll have a better uh, chance to cure the problems of terrorism. In the short run, you still have to keep your military active. And Biden said that he said, you know, we will hunt you to the ends of the earth and make you pay. So it's like, hey, you know, the carrot and the stick are being used. It's what nice about, to see the carrot used for a change. 
What about those that are left behind? Uh, Canada still saying that there's uh, 1,200 uh, friends of Canadians or Canadian passports that are still there. Uh, what's the situation with Americans, and and is there any hope for those that are left behind? I think there is hope. I think there's um, it, there's ample evidence, and this was before we got out. I asked this question in the White House briefing room about a month ago, if they were, and I, I said, "Are you working with the Taliban?" And they said, "Well, we have." you know, an embassy there. So think what you will. Well, it's obvious that we have been working with the Taliban. The Taliban has international pressure now on it because it wants to be recognized as a legitimate government. And it's in their best interest. Again, as the president said, it's in their best interest. They don't trust. He doesn't trust them, but he trusts that they'll work in their own best interest. And their best interest is to help get people out of there. We got out, according to the uh, latest statistics, 98% of the Americans. Um, I think that that was a, I, I think the chaos in getting people out of that country was to be expected. I don't know if anyone expected it to be quite as chaotic, but still they, in, in about a month's time, evacuated the equivalent of, you know, uh, of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, an entire city in, you know, in less than a month. So there's something to be said for that. And I think it could have been, that could have been done better. And there is a concern now that um, we're not there. How do you get the rest of them out? But uh, if they'll work with us in their self-interest, if we make them understand it's within their self-interest to do it, um, I, I think that we'll get out with uh, fewer problems than one anticipated. We saw the footage of uh, when uh, uh, the Taliban made its way into the airport and, and the, the equipment that was there that's and such, and even the equipment that they were wearing. Uh, usually you see, you know, the Taliban in, in some pretty, you know, rough shot military wear. Now they look Not like even a pile military, of military, brother. <laughs> exactly. It looks exactly. like a gang from Detroit at night. I know exactly what you're saying, Brian. Uh, but, yeah. but, but now all of a sudden there they are and they look like Americans uh, with the equipment that they're wearing and such. Yes, and how long uh, before they open up a Walmart and a McDonald's? That's there the you question. go. Maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe that's what will happen. Uh, but, we're you know, the equipment left behind and we heard like something like 100 vehicles yeah. 79 aircraft of some sort uh your thoughts on that and and obviously it's been disabled and such but uh or what are they, what, that's a good question I or mean, is it yeah that's the question was that part of our deal with the taliban to get out of the country is that one of the reasons why they've been so kind to us we you know they they we clothed them. We gave them a car without a flat tire on it. And and, uh, and now they're, you know, working in their self-interest to get us out. That's a good question. I, I don't know. Now, you know, every time you leave a theater of war, you're going to leave, you know, equipment behind. Um, only the U.S. military knows how uh, effective the equipment was. That was left behind. Only the American military knows if anything of real importance was left behind. I would suspect that it wasn't. Um, I would suspect that working an hour, again, trusting us to work in our own self-interest, I don't think we left anything behind that would, uh, you know, could later, like drones or or anything that could come back, high-tech stuff that could, could uh, come back and be used against us. But I could be proven wrong because, like I said, the one thing about the United States military that you have to realize is when they talk about military intelligence, they're talking about a contradiction in terms. Uh, it's interesting that you say that that could be or could have been, we don't know, part of a deal 
uh, to, to let them get out as, as uh, quickly and safely as even they did. Donald Trump weighing in on that, saying we should have just blown the stuff all to hell. Yeah, well, Donald Trump can somebody, you know, he's a blow hard. So, they, you know, whatever Donald Trump says, take with a grain of salt. I, I, you know, he lied to us for four years and now he's just standing on the sidelines yelling like a kid who wants to get back in the football game. Um, uh, I, I really can't listen to what he says because he's an idiot. Uh, one more question on that, Brian, and I'll let you go. Cause I remember when you were, uh, you know, in there, we would talk to you when you were a white house reporter and having to, to deal with this, uh, administration, many were talking about after the election, how much of an impact he would still have on that down on that note, Brian, from your perspective, how much of an influence does he still have down there? Uh, considering where the U S is now. I, I think he has waning influence. I think it grows uh, thinner every day. I think the nuts that followed him in are the ones you got to worry about now. You know, the Boberts and the uh, the McCarthy, all those people that got involved in the insurrection and want to cover up their um, their presence in trying to overthrow our government. Those are the ones you really have to worry about. And then his minions that have gotten into office, like in Texas, who are now passing these horrible pieces of legislation that throw us back into the dark ages when it comes to women having the right to choose and about voter, uh, you know, the ability for voters to vote. All of that, voter suppression and uh, all of that is what we really have to worry about. That was not Donald Trump was a symptom, but he gave birth to these morons, political birth to these morons that are now uh, being listened to and are uh, ruling some aspects of our government. That's the real fear. That's the real problem that we have. And we have not dealt with it effectively yet. And the midterm elections in 2022 are going to be a, uh, a clarion call for the United States. We're going to go one way or we're going to no- go another. And you have to watch those elections in 2022. And that will tell you where the U.S. is going. Hmm. All right. Getting back to Afghanistan, where do you see this country one year, two year, five years down the road? Uh, obviously, Americans there for 20 years. So that's 20 years of education for women and girls, uh, 20 years of doing things differently. Is that all just completely wiped out or is the Taliban got a different Afghanistan on its hands this time? Well, it does have a different Afghanistan on its hands. What it does with it is is up for grabs. And if I had a crystal ball and could tell you what was going to happen, man, I, I'd, I'd be you'd come to me for investment advice. Mm. But I, you know, I no one can tell where it will go. I can only tell you that with 20 years of the United States there, the opportunities for women have been seen. And I doubt that they'll go gentle into that good night. And I doubt that uh, the rest of Afghanistan will either. I think the Taliban will have to tread lightly. They already have. Uh, problems with ISIS-K. And look, like I said, that's a country of a lot of tribes. And if they can stitch that country together, they're going to have to do it by appealing to more than just the radicals who support them. As Donald Trump found, you can't really hold on to power that long unless you reach across the aisle. Now, if they do that, then they might have a history, they might have a future. If they don't do that, they're going to be, you know, tattooed and they'll, and, and there'll be somebody else that'll come in and fill the void. We and remember so, that's what we have to look at. I'm sorry. Go we, ahead. Uh, sorry to interrupt there, Brian. We no, right. we uh, we uh, we remember how this all started 20 years ago with 9/11, with the Afghan uh, Afghanistan now falling back into Taliban control. How mm-hmm. concerned America is America or the rest of the world of uh, you know a, a type of 9/11 attack again? 
Well, I think that the president said that there are other pressing problems uh, closer to home. I think there are. Um, terrorism is, like I said, is always going to be a threat until you make lifestyles, until the, the average Afghanistan mother and father are worried about getting their kids to soccer practice and getting the orthodontist, you know, uh, uh, appointment made for their kids until they they're leading that kind of life. You're going to always have that problem. It's why you do have inner city gangs. It's why you do have problems in the U.S., Canada and elsewhere is because there are people that are doing without when you have a large group of them in an entire country doing without living in a, a substandard, you know, there's some people live in sea containers. There's some people mm. who live, you know, basically in tents like the Bedouin and they have nothing. And when someone comes along with a little charisma and says, look, I, I love you. I'll take care of you and your family. All you got to do is strap a bomb to yourself. You may go, but be, no, be it known, you'll have, you know, your solace in heaven and your family on earth will be cared for. That is powerful to people who have nothing. And until you remove that power, you're still going to have that problem no matter where in the world it is. And until we realize that and take advantage of some of the natural things that we do well in this country, until we appeal to people's better angels, we're always going to have that problem. Well said. Brian J. Karam with us, White House reporter, political analyst for CNN and host of the Just Ask the Question podcast. Brian, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Sure. Can I put in one last plug? Go for it. (laughs) Okay. This fall coming out, it's called Free the Press. And it's a book I've written about uh, the problems of the press in the United States and how government killed it and how we can bring back a real independent fourth estate. And uh, so I hope everybody gets it and reads it. All right. Free the press. It is coming from Brian J. Karam. Thank you, Brian. Be well. You too. All right. The government of China has put a tight restriction on video games and just uh, general Western culture uh, in the name of protecting their national strength. Also, uh, Chinese news is reporting that Michael Spaver had sent photographs of military equipment to Michael Kovrig, uh, shedding some light on what their detention is all about. Let's bring in Gordon Holden, director of the China Institute and professor of political science, University of Alberta. Gordon, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. Thank you. Uh, what can you tell us about this latest information in regard to Michael Spaver and Michael Kovrig? Uh, obviously, we're still waiting to hear uh, what happens with Michael Kovrig. But uh, have you heard uh, this information before about f- uh, photographs of military equipment being sent back and forth? No, but in one hand, it's not surprising, but it's demoralizing in another sense. The fact that the Chinese state media is prepared to release this information clearly provided by the police authorities or the Public Security Bureau, tells me that we're far from a solution. Because now, not only has there been a trial, but there's now been evidence released, which was not made public at the time of the trial. So this says to me that the Chinese uh, reckon that this case is not going to be solved, that there's no progress on the Hmong case either, and they're prepared to justify their actions. Why is uh, the Chinese media reporting on this now, considering, uh, at least with Spaver, this has come and gone? Why would they release this now? Is this indirect uh, uh, to, to talk about Kovrig specifically? Why would this be coming out now? I think it's largely aimed at the international community. China has taken a bit of a black eye from Western countries who are um, very unhappy and supporting the Canadian demands that the two Michaels be released. 
by doing this, by releasing information um, uh, which is unverifiable for, by any of us, they in effect say, look, we had a reason, it wasn't retaliation for Hmong, uh, this was a real case. So I think they're in effect trying to justify post facto their actions. Uh, can you give us an update on both of these cases? Because obviously with Michael Spaver, we understand that has already gone through and, and, and is complete, but we're still waiting for Kovrig. Is, is that accurate? That is accurate. And we're, we could expect that the sentence will be, relieved, will be released eventually. Now, normally, if these weren't, in my opinion, political cases, this would have been done and finished uh, perhaps even almost two years ago. Because the Chinese, in my opinion, are using this as leverage against the Hmong case, seeing no progress on Hmong, they're gradually but steadily, in effect, finishing these cases off and, and, and moving forward. Um, that doesn't mean that the end of the Hmong case might not help release them, not instantly, but I think they're, in effect, showing they have some cards to play. Uh, does this support uh, the thought that perhaps Kovrig's case is moving forward? Would that lead you to believe this? It's very hard to know. I think in the case of Kovrig, there's one sensitivity, and that is that Kovrig is a diplomat. Uh, he served in Beijing. Chinese actually generally take those, having done that job in Beijing, take those uh, categories fairly seriously. They even actually incorrectly um, interrogated Kovrig about his time working as a diplomat, which is strictly not allowed under the Vienna Convention. When that was pointed out to them, they backed off. But I, I think that they are still holding out, having us hold out a bit of hope that Kovrig might be treated differently. Maybe he'll get a lighter sentence. So they, in effect, they have these cards in hand, Stellenberg, Kovrig, Spavor, and they play them one by one uh, from that package they hold. Is there any real news from the Huawei CFO case? Any update here? Well, the, the, the court case is largely wrapped up. We're waiting probably a couple of months for the judge to release her decision. Right. Now, that doesn't mean, no, if she should decide that there's no case to answer, if she believes the Huawei lawyers, the case would be dropped. I somehow doubt that the government would appeal it, and she'd be free to leave. If the judge decides that there is a case to answer in the United States, uh, then what would be more likely would be appeals launched from the, um, from the Chinese side, from the Huawei side, uh, and uh, that could drag out, in Syria at least, in years if they were to work there all the way to the Supreme Court. So we, we could be near the end of it, or we could be um, not even maybe to the middle. Are you surprised at the length of time the judge is taking to make a decision? Does that say anything? Well, I, listening to some of the yes and no, I suppose, that, uh, that it's a complex case, that you have very talented legal uh, personnel, legal guns on both sides, on the Crown side, on the Huawei side, uh, who have put forward a whole range of sophisticated arguments. The judge is obliged to follow the law. And having this vast amount of legal arguments and documents thrown at her, I think it's not unreasonable that she not make a snap decision. The, the judgment alone will probably run to hundreds, it could run to hundreds of pages, and that takes some time to do. So it doesn't, to me, really indicate an, uh, either either way in terms of what's likely to happen, simply that she's a serious judge and will take this case seriously. 
Um, how is the Chinese Communist Party uh, uh, being uh, uh, accepted in China? Is there uh, a, a lot of resistance? Is there support and cooperation? The reason I'm saying this, uh, I've seen a couple of items in uh, in the media recently. Uh, China putting a tight restriction on kids and video games, uh, television from the West, and what they call banning sissy pants that's a quote sissy pants celebrities in the name of protecting their culture and national strength how does that oh and, and another one also limiting the number of exams in school can you explain any of this well the, the exams in schools are a slightly different one there's no doubt about it that they because competition is so severe to to get into a chinese university um, particularly a good university uh, and that, this, that exam, which falls normally when people are about 14 years old, the national Gaokou or national exam, uh, it determines the fate of individuals. You're either cast towards a, a better job or a not-so-great job. So they, the parents spend mountains of money studying for exams, hiring tutors, sometimes spending themselves deeply into debt to make sure that the kids do well. That I actually have some sympathy for. Uh, and uh, I think it's just too tough a barrier for a lot of children. It's even there's a suicide effect for for young people. Hmm. The other things are in a different category, and they seem to me uh, this the Communist Party of China flexing its muscle when it comes to to media. Media is the one area where there has the Chinese Communist Party has not allowed their monopoly to be broken, except and this is an important exception, things like video games, etc. But television, print. Television are all are all state owned. Some of the things, like limiting the amount of time the kids can play video games, three hours a week or something like that, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But that ought to be the role, from my perspective, of parents, hmm. not allowing the state and party to manage all of those things. So I think it's a communist party being the communist party, um, whether they're popular or not. It's a, it's a very good question. They're the only party of any substance that's allowed. And they have some 90 million members. They've got a huge influence. If you're ambitious, you probably want to join the party. Um, if you poll Chinese, they're probably going to say good things about the party. But how how fair is that poll, given that people are going to be on the phone line listening? Complicated question. Is there anarchy within the ranks of the Chinese Communist Party? I don't think so. I think that Xi Jinping runs a pretty tight ship. Having said that, from my experience, I served in Canadian embassies on in, on three continents in communist part, communist governments, Eastern Europe, Cuba, and China. The when you have one party, what matters are the factions in that party, and the factions often act like parties. So I can guarantee you that 90 million members of the Chinese Communist Party, they've got different views. You've got different rivalries, different leaders within those factions. So there's always that struggle below the surface, and we cannot see it easily, but if you're in that party, particularly upper ranks, it's very intense. But I would say it's not anarchy, it's more superficial calm. Um, it's bit to be like watching water polo. There's an awful lot of kicking and fighting goes along below the water surface. <laughs> 
um, a, a sad anniversary coming up September 5th, 1,000 days since uh, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor uh, have been jailed in China. How significant is this day, uh, September 5th? How significant will it be? And will, will this renew more interest in this? Uh, the uh, Globe and Mail asking you to write a letter to them uh, to, to lift their spirits. How significant is this 1,000-day mark? Well, for the two individuals, the two Canadians, and for their families, it's a terrible um, mark. I mean, it's a good now a chunk of their adult lives have been spent in Chinese jails where no one would wish to be. So I think it is important to honor these these numbers. Now, the Chinese have been quick themselves, of course, to note 1,000 days for Meng Wanzhou. Cases are not equivalent. But I think they've even, the fact they've noticed this campaign and picked up upon it and, in fact, and copied it, says that they've also noticed it. I don't think it means means a lot in terms of the cases themselves. I think it's more important from the humanitarian sense of Canadians and others overseas uh, noting uh, how much they have suffered and for so and for such a long time. Would anybody in China uh, amongst the citizenry be aware of what's really happening to the Huawei CFO here that in fact she is walking around albeit with an anklet bracelet and and moving pretty freely from mansion to mansion while uh, the other two are in in, in terrible conditions does that uh, would that make it to Chinese media at all, that how she's being treated so well because of our standards and these two are being treated so poorly? Not at all. Yeah. There is a minority, a significant minority of people who have access to Western media, even because they know how to get around the, the great firewall that prevents Chinese from accessing the open Internet. There's also a number of senior people who have free access to the Internet, and I've met many of those people as part of their jobs. But for the vast majority, they are confined to the state media. And for many rank and file Chinese, they tend to take that on board. However, there's something I call antibodies that develop in communist societies where people become wary and don't necessarily believe everything they see. They see a headline such as says, my party unity has never been greater. They know there's problems with party unity. So I think it depends how savvy. I've even met people from who have escaped from North Korea, who have just ceased believing a long time before, but of course still had to absolutely had to um, play along. And then there are those I've seen these in North Korea as well, true believers who believe every word they read. They're probably in the majority, so it's a bit complicated. But in general, people in China won't have had access to the details of Madame Meng's rather more luxurious situation. Uh, to me, it just seems in, in, incredible that a country so large that has so many people in it that the Chinese Communist Party can literally put a blanket over this, the, the entire country and isolate it. In this world of technology, you know, 2021, I'm just, I'm just astounded that that can still happen. Does does anybody think about that, or is it just obvious with this regime? No, I think you I think you hit upon something quite amazing, and it's something to prove to um, Chinese ingenuity and hard work. I'm not saying that admiring sense. Don't get me wrong, but there are literally hundreds of thousands of people who are engaged in managing the the Great Firewall, surveilling. Uh, they don't try. They don't, of course, follow everybody all the time. That's even beyond them. But they certainly can, uh, and this is much, much of it's done by very sophisticated logarithms and computers who are constantly looking for 
things, words, phrases, sentiments that are unacceptable. And so it's a massive technological enterprise. And now that Chinese have trouble traveling abroad, thanks to COVID, it's probably even more effective. Mm. Gordon Holden with us, director of the China Institute and professor of political science, University of Alberta. Gordon, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Same to you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.